Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Intersecting Media presents. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. The next thing in late night talk. Here we go. While you're working, eating, and playing, he's watching. It'll be like O10. Keeping you informed. Thank you. Jason Page. Demented and sad. But social. Covering all the day's news from a studio somewhere in Southeast Asia. Worldwide! And talking about it with you. Blah, blah, blah. You're up late with Jason Page. Hooah! Or up early. Good morning. But just stay up. It is time. Here's Jason. Thank you, Chad Erickson. Thank you for watching wherever you are around the world. Up late is on. I am Jason. Got a busy hour ahead. Wow, Bitcoin up to almost 54,000 today. Up almost 7% in the last 24 hours. Look at that, breaking news. So we got a lot to do, as I said. We'll tie it all together. Uh, We weren't on much last week, and I, I feel like I owe a little bit of an explanation. Um... There's a lot going on personally for me. We had um, my father, as I as I had mentioned, uh, I had talked about this a little bit at the end of a show, maybe two or three weeks ago, asking you guys to, to keep my my family in your thoughts and my father in particular. Um, my father's battling cancer, um, and doing it with the um, bravery that one would expect of my of my father. He's He's faced this pretty tough. He's 77 years old. And last week he had the surgery to remove this cancer from his lung. And post-op was not good for the first three or four days. So there's a lot of stress last week um, for me in dealing with that situation from 9,000 miles away um, here in Singapore where I'm broadcasting from. And him back in the United States in Connecticut. So there was that and compounded with the fact that, (laughs) this is almost embarrassing to admit, I had a gout attack last week, which for the first few days of the week was preventing me from standing. Um, My right foot was just all swelled up. I hadn't had a gout attack in about 13 or 14 months. I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner, frankly, with the way I've been eating here in Singapore. Um, So I couldn't really stand to do the show. So we had to take a few days off. We did a couple of shows last week and we ran back our interview with Lon McCarron one day and we did a show on Monday, but that was it. I, there, was just, there just wasn't much more I could unfortunately do. So uh, my apologies that we weren't on last week. Don't worry. We're still doing the show. We're going to keep doing the show. It was just a situation where unfortunately a, a confluence of events was preventing me from doing it. And if I can't do it well, I won't do it at all, plain and simple. If I can't do the show, I'm just not going to do it. So I didn't want to just ignore the fact that we weren't on um, for much of last week. I didn't think that was uh, right of me to do. Okay. Um, Got a lot to do over the next 60 minutes. I've got four or five topics that I want to delve into today. And the problem with not doing a show for as long as we were off is that it makes it 
more difficult when you come back to um, to come on and do it, if you know what I mean. It makes it more difficult to come back and actually do the show because there's so many things sort of backloaded that I want to talk about, and I'm limiting the show to being an hour long. Now, theoretically, I could do the show as long as I want. Um, it's my show. <laughs> <laughs> so if I want to, I could uh, I could sit here for for a number of hours, but I'd like I like to keep the show regularly to one hour. Um, it just makes my life a, a lot easier. So today I want to ask I want to start the show asking a fundamental question. I think it's a, a very important question. Um, I want to begin with a very fundamental question, and I want you to ask this fundamental question. Okay, I want you to look at the Republican Party and ask this question. If you're a Republican, ask yourself this question. If you have a friend that's a Republican, that's you know this, these died in the wool Republicans, we'll support them no matter what. Ask them this question: Why do they want to make all of these changes to voter laws? Why do they want to make it harder? and not easier to vote. Ask yourself that question. Why do Republicans want to make it so hard for you to vote? You've got something like 43 states that are trying to enact laws that are going to make it harder for people to vote. Why? Now, before you go to your default answer, before you go to your default answer, which is, well, voting irregularities and and voter fraud, and we've got to stop it because we don't want dead people voting and people casting multiple ballots and running from one precinct to another and voting multiple times. Stop. I want to tell you something. I need you to listen to this. Going Now, this is the Heritage Foundation. Not exactly a liberal bastion. Okay? This is the Heritage Foundation. Their information as it relates to voter fraud. Here it is. I'm going to give you a number. You ready? 1,311. What is that number? 1,311? That's how many voter fraud cases there have been since 1982. Not this last voter cycle, not this last election cycle, which still would be a minuscule number when you consider how many votes are cast. Not over the last 10 years, not over the last 20 years, but almost 30 years. How many instances of voter fraud? 1,311. 30 years, that many cases. Heritage Foundation. Do the homework, look it up. Iowa was the latest state 
to change voter registration laws and voter, you know, election day laws. And Iowa's a relatively close state. It's a it's a red state. It's almost purplish, but it's a red state. I think we could fairly and comfortably say it's a it's a red state. But Iowa enacted a new law. The governor signed this GOP-backed law that's going to make it harder to vote early. And who votes early? Democrats. They're going to end voting an hour earlier. Who votes later? Democrats. Now, this is from the state as it admits... As the state admits, they don't have an issue with voter fraud. The state of Iowa acknowledges they have no voter fraud issues. So why are you making it harder for Democrats to vote? Because you can't beat them when it comes to ideas. And they know that over the next two years, four years, the Democrats are going to be able to enact a lot of their goals. And they are things that will be largely popular with the American people, even in red states. So now the only play they have left is to change the rules of the game. The only play they have left is to get you not to vote. That's it. If you don't vote, Republicans still got a shot. The only way they can win at this point, because they can't win in the battle of ideas, because you see the results of those Republican ideas. Tax cut for the rich, taking away Obamacare, trying to strip it down bare, the handling of the pandemic. I got news for you. It's red state folks. It's Trump voters. How many stories did you hear of Trump voters, Trump supporters dying of COVID saying, but they told us we didn't have to wear masks. Oh, they're out there. The only way they can win is to rig the game. And that's what Republicans are trying to do now in so many states across America. And this is the problem with not federalizing elections. Every state being able to do its own thing. You have Republican governors in a lot of these states. You have Republican legislatures in a lot of these states. So as much as we go crazy about the Senate and Congress and obviously the president, in the presidential election every year. It's your own state, man. It's your own backyard. It's your mayors. It's the state legislature. When they come knocking on your door every September or October, and you don't want to talk to them, and then you just go to the poll, and you don't even know what the issues are, and you just cast a ballot down whatever line you grew up voting for, what do your, what'd your parents vote for, or what's your favorite color? 
Yeah. That's how you get to where we are today. With Republicans dominating state legislatures and as a result being able to, in a country where the states can mandate how voting is handled, which was a godsend in some regards to Democrats in 2020 because it prohibited the Supreme Court from really getting involved in a lot of the ways these states ran their elections. But the end result now is you're going to have Republicans that run these state legislatures doing everything they can to rig the game against Democrats. And don't take it from me. Take it from the attorney arguing against the state of Arizona in a Supreme Court case that they need to change the rules in Arizona that basically are going to disenfranchise Democratic voters and minority voters. And when the court asks him why, he says, well, because it gives Democrats a better chance of beating us. Don't take it from me. Republicans are telling you. They're not even trying to hide it. They're telling you we can't beat them in the game of ideas. So we have to rig the game when it comes to voting. Just do the homework. I'm not telling you anything. This is fact. This isn't opinion. I'm giving you the information. Heritage Foundation. 1,300 voter fraud cases since 1982. Freest country in the world. Why do we want to make it so hard for people to vote? Here's another reality. Our system right now, our voter setup is not meant to handle large swaths of voters. It's not meant to handle the entire electorate coming out to vote. If every single person that was eligible to vote came out and voted in the presidential election, you would shut the election system down. You'd have... You'd have lines stretching miles because the system isn't meant to handle it. The antiquated system that's in place, not meant to handle it. You should be able to vote by mail in this day and age. You should be able to vote early. Now Republicans in Iowa have said instead of 29 days to vote early, now we're going to make it 20. Instead of polls closing at, say, 8, we're going to close them at 7. Or instead of closing at 7, we're going to close them at 6. Why? The state doesn't have any voter fraud issues. They've said that themselves. They've looked at the numbers. They've looked at the evidence. And they've figured out, hmm, We're going to gain votes if we shut down early voting by nine days. We're going to gain votes if we shut down voting an hour earlier on election day. 
They're not even hiding it. It's right there in plain sight for you. You've got Georgia doing it now. You've got states all over America. You can't let them win. You have got to go out on election day in two years, in four more years. You have to go out and say, you know what, we'll stand in line then. We're not going to let you rig the game against us. And you have to vote in legislatures that are going to make it easier to vote. If if Republic look, this isn't a Democrat versus Republican thing as much as it sounds like it. It's an ease with which we want people to be able to vote argument for me. Freest country in the world, greatest country in the world, United States, shining star on the hill, whatever. And we want to make it impossible for people to cast one of their most fundamental rights. <sighs> the ability to vote. How do you defend that? Ask yourself that if you're a Republican. Ask yourself if you're an independent. Say, why are they making it so much harder to vote? Again, I gave you the numbers. 1,311. That's from the Heritage Foundation. That's how many cases of voter fraud since 1982. It's amazing. All right. Um, There's some good news on the COVID front. People are being vaccinated at a much higher rate. Over the next several weeks, next three or four weeks, they're talking about potentially 30 million people in the United States being vaccinated. The United States has become the envy of the world when it comes to vaccinating. Oh, yeah, it happens to coincide with who the new president is. What do you know? Elections do have consequences. But in one state, in one state, There's people calling for an investigation into whether or not the governor of one state basically sold COVID-19 vaccines to his supporters, as in people who gave his campaign a lot of money. We'll tell you who it is next. All right, we welcome you back up late. Or up early, depending on where you're watching us around the world. Thank you for doing so. I am Jason Page. Coming up in about 12 minutes, uh, I want to talk about this fascination with the Royals. There's always, I, I don't get it. I don't understand the... I know they've been glamorized over the years, so people have this... And they're promoted a lot in the press, even here in the, even here. Uh, well, even here in Singapore. I mean, it's discuss- It's everywhere around the world. We always talk about this monarchy in, in, in Great Britain. And the royals and the queen and the prince and the princess and all this stuff. I don't get it. Uh, but we'll talk about it coming up because... There was an interesting interview on Sunday night that's obviously had a lot of people 
talking, and it had a lot of people watching, which isn't going to do anything to quell the media's appetite for the royal family. (laughs) Uh, We'll get to that coming up. So what's Ron DeSantis' deal? (laughs) What is it with Ron DeSantis? Um, this guy supposedly got aspirations to run for president, which is kind of crazy. Um, again, the Republican party is such, it's, it's such a clown car right now. Um, you know, you know, the clown car, the door opens, tiny car and a bunch of clowns get out. That's, that's the Republican party right now. They are the clown car party. Headline from the Huffington Post. Florida officials call on FBI to investigate red carpet vaccines for state's GOP donors. Agricultural Commissioner, Florida Agricultural Commissioner, Nikki Freed, talking about reported vaccine distribution by Governor DeSantis. Quote, if this isn't public corruption, I don't know what is. What are we talking about here? Well, Freed is calling on the FBI to launch an investigation into what she has called Ron DeSantis's system of red carpet vaccine distribution for wealthy GOP donors. Quote, the fact pattern is simply... Just too clear to avoid. Give campaign contributions big dollars, get special access to vaccines. This was always a fear, I think, of medical ethicists. I think this has always been a concern. Not just in the U.S., by the way, but around the world. That the rich and powerful and those that are connected... We're going to be able to get access to a vaccine. And who wasn't going to be able to get access to a vaccine? The poor, the impoverished, minorities, those who desperately need it, those who were at greater risk, they were going to be the ones who couldn't get it. Nikki Fried said, if this isn't public corruption, I don't know what is, last Thursday. I will not stand by and let our vaccines be used as a political game and to go to the highest bidders while so many of our Floridians are suffering, like my grandfather, like my mother, like your parents and grandparents, she told reporters. The Miami Herald was the first to report on this. Listen to this. According to the Miami Herald, every individual over the age of 65, some 1,200 people in Ocean Reef Club... What's the Ocean Reef Club, you might be asking? You could probably already tell. It's a wealthy enclave of Republican contributors in Key Largo. All the way to Key Largo. Well, they received vaccines by the middle of January. Basically right away. At the same time, people in most of the rest of the state Couldn't get their hands on vaccines. I mean, it's not difficult 
to connect the dots on this. A lot of it's circumstantial, I'm sure, because I'd be shocked if there was a paper trail leading back to Ron DeSantis that says, hey, you campaign guy, you GOPers in Key Largo in Ocean Reef, you go send me some big donations, I'll get you the vaccine. Like it's coming off the back of a truck. Uh, Charlie Crist is running for governor against DeSantis. And I look, I don't know if he stands much of a chance. The Charlie Crist train is kind of come and gone. But he's also calling on the Justice Department. Quote, in several cases, these vaccine sites seem to be targeted to wealthy communities with whom Governor DeSantis has clear political connections, allowing some to skip to the front of the line in counties with existing wait lists. The Herald linked other pop-up vaccine centers to communities that forked out money to DeSantis. Again, reading from this article. Three Florida communities chosen by DeSantis for vaccine sites were developed by real estate mogul Pat Neal. How much did Pat Neal contribute to Ron DeSantis' 2018 and 2019? How much did he camp did he donate? $125,000. So if you want to know the cost of getting a COVID vaccine, there you go, $129,000, $125,000. The governor raised $2.7 million in campaign donations last month alone. The most of a single month since 2018. Which, by the way, is when he ran for governor. The newspaper described Ocean Reef as the home of, quote, Many wealthy donors to the Florida Republican Party and GOP candidates, including DeSantis. In fact, the newspaper noted the only residents of Key Largo that donated to DeSantis live in Ocean Reef. Let me say that again. Only residents of Key Largo, the only residents of Key Largo that donated to Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, live in this enclave. One of the residents is former Illinois governor, Bruce Rauner. He wrote a $250,000 check to DeSantis' campaign in late February. Presumably after he got the vaccine. $250,000. Rich and powerful and connected get access to the vaccine. Eh, you? Middle-class Joe? Middle-class Mary? Middle-class Susie? Get in the back of the line. You wait your turn. Got to make sure our rich friends and those helping us out, putting money in our campaign coffers, got to make sure they get the vaccine first. It's the American way. DeSantis insisted last Thursday, quote, I'm not worried about your income bracket. I'm worried about your age bracket. Again, It's not going to be an easy case to prove unless you've got a paper trail. A lot of it's circumstantial. Some people might say, well, that evidence is kind of thin. But ask yourself, why are these DeSantis contribution enclaves getting access to the vaccine first? Again, say it out loud. That's just a coincidence. No. 
You know it. You know what your own eyes and ears are telling you. All right, I got to talk about the Royals. (laughs) I don't want to, but I got to talk about Prince Harry and Meghan and their interview with Oprah. And it's a couple of different angles I want to tackle this from. Uh, We'll do that next, up late. We welcome you back up late with Jason Page. Glad to have you with us on this Monday slash Tuesday edition of the show. By the way, I forgot to mention at the top, um, if you haven't already done so, follow us, subscribe, whether you're watching on Facebook, whether you're watching on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, um, subscribe to the program. Also, if you're unable to watch us live, you can listen to the show. We have a podcast, the Up Late with Jason Page podcast, which is available every morning after we do the show. So Monday night show, available first thing Monday morning. So if you can't watch us, you can listen to us on your way to work, on the drive, on the subway, on the bus, inside the Uber or inside the Lyft or inside your Grab, whatever. Uh, You have an opportunity to listen to this show every day, Monday through Friday. Uh, So please do so. Also, if you have not yet done so, um, so subscribe to the Up Late with Jason Page podcast. We still have the Intersection podcast, which is my opportunity to do these long-form interviews with people I find fascinating and people I'm interested in. Uh, This week on the Intersection podcast, uh, I get to have a conversation with a good friend of mine, uh, Stan Van Gundy. We worked together back in my days with NBC Sports. He was there for a couple of years. Uh, Then he went to work for ESPN. Then he went to work for Turner. Now he's back in the league coaching again uh, with the New Orleans Pelicans. I mean, really. Talk about landing a plum job. You get to coach Lonzo Ball, uh, Brandon Ingram, and Zion Williamson. (laughs) I mean, it's not a bad situation to walk into. Uh, They are 12th in the West right now, and they've had a rough first half defensively. Uh, I got to spend 45 minutes with them. The entire conversation available, Intersection Podcast. You'll be able to get it uh, on Tuesday morning back in the U.S. Uh, Look for it. We'll have it there. The Intersection Podcast. Stan Van Gundy, my guest this week. And we talked about everything. I'll have a sneak peek at our conversation coming up just before uh, the end of this show. So make sure to stay tuned for that. Something to wet your whistle, so to speak. Uh, I've got a couple other sports things to get to, including the insane contract for Dak Prescott. Why Jerry caved on this, I have no idea. But he did. Uh, So we'll talk about that coming up. Mm, Ten minutes or so from now. Why are people fascinated with the Royals? I will never get this. I have never been one. I mean, when Princess Diana died, um, I do remember sitting there and watching the the funeral. Uh, I was in Connecticut at the time. And I remember watching the funeral with Princess Diana. You know, it was just, I mean, it was heartbreaking. It was heart-wrenching. You saw her kids back then were little, you know, walking the streets um, as her casket was um, sent through the streets of of Great Britain. I mean, it was it was awful. 
But I've never, outside of that story, which was just so sensational, I've never understood the rest of the sensationalizing of the Royals. And maybe it's because of the way they're covered by the media. But I just don't get it. I never have. With that said, I would not be doing justice to this show, where we talk about everything. I would not be doing justice to this show if I ignored the fact that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, I don't even know if he's technically Prince Harry anymore, but Princess Diana's youngest son, Harry, if, I don't think I'd be doing it justice if we didn't talk about it. They gave an interview to Oprah Winfrey, who apparently still has the clout and cachet to get those big interviews, even though she hasn't had a show in a zillion years. And I know she has her own channel and all that, and it's fine. I've never, I, I've never bought into the cachet of Oprah. Never have bought into it. I think she's a great speaker. I think she has a great life story to share. I think her show was fine. I didn't wasn't must-see TV for me. I don't know if any of those daytime TV shows are must-see TV for me, quite honestly. Because so much is so much of what people say in those conversations these days are is so homogenized. It's so prepped, it's so prepared, it's such stock answers that to me, eh, doesn't do a ton for me. But anyway, Oprah has her crowd. But did you see how many people watched the Sunday night interview on CBS? How about if I give you this number? You ready? Seventeen point one million people. You hear me? Seventeen point one million people watched the interview. With Harry and Meghan and Oprah. And that is an astronomical number. That is an NFL Week 1 2019 regular season number. You heard me right. There's nothing that comes close to the NFL year in and year out in sports. That 17.1 million number is I believe three or four times the number of the people that watch the Golden Globes. 17.1 million tuned in to hear what Prince Harry and Meghan Markle had to say to Oprah. Now let me tackle this from a couple of different angles. Um, First, some of what was said that has raised some eyebrows. This is Meghan Markle on meeting the Queen for the first time. She was going to have lunch at the Royal Lodge where Prince Andrew and Sarah Ferguson live when she and Harry learned Queen Elizabeth was attending a church service and would stop by after. Harry asked Meghan if she knew how to curtsy, which shocked her. Quote, I thought genuinely that was what happens outside. I thought that was part of the fanfare. I didn't think that was what happens inside. And I said, but it's your grandmother. And he said, it's the queen, Megan told Oprah. Fortunately, Megan got a crash course from Harry and Fergie and made it through the curtsy. After that, quote, then just we sat there and we chatted and it was lovely and easy, the Duchess said. On the couple's secret wedding ceremony, 
Three days before our wedding, Megan said, we got married. No one knows that. We called the archbishop and we just said, look, this thing, this spectacles for the world. But we want our union between us. So the vows that we have framed in our room are just the two of us in our backyard with the archbishop of Canterbury. Added Harry, yeah, just the three of us. A source close to the couple later clarified that while they did exchange vows in a private ceremony, they were legally married during their official ceremony. On reports that she made Kate cry, Meghan Markle said, quote, no, I didn't make Kate cry, she said. No, the reverse happened. And I don't say that to be disparaging to anyone because it was really a hard week of the wedding. And she was upset about it. And she owned it. And she apologized. And she brought me flowers and a note apologizing. And she did what I would do. on the royal family deciding not to make Archie a prince. They were saying they didn't want him to be a prince or princess, which would be different from protocol and that he wasn't going to receive security, Megan said. This went on for the last few months of our pregnancy, where I was going, hold on for a second, she explained further. They said he's not going to get security because he's not going to be a prince. Okay, well, he needs to be safe, so we're not saying don't make him a prince or princess, But if you're saying the title is what's going to affect that protection, we haven't created this monster machine around us in terms of clickbait and tabloid fodder. You've allowed that to happen, which means our son needs to be safe. Megan said no suitable explanation was given for why they didn't want Archie to have a title. That if it meant that he would get security, she didn't want him to have a title. If it meant he was going to be safe, of course, all the grandeur around this stuff is an attachment I don't have. The most important title I will ever have is mom, she said. Once Prince Charles becomes king, as the rules are now, Archie would automatically become a prince. But Meghan said, even with that convention, that automatically makes all grandchildren of the monarch a prince or princess. They said, I want to change the convention for Archie. Well, why? She added that it was particularly concerning that the first member of color in this family isn't being titled in the same way as other grandchildren would be. This discussion about the title was happening during her pregnancy when concerns and conversations about how dark Archie's skin might be when he was born were raised to Harry by a member of the family. She talked about the fact that she was thinking about suicide, I mean, this, this was a far-wide-ranging conversation. Now, some people that are protective of the monarchy, the Pierce Morgans of the world, have made it their goal to just slam Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Some people saying, you know, Prince Harry's been emasculated. He's got, you know, she's got Prince Harry wrapped around her little finger. I saw, I think it was Charlie Kirk, a conservative commentator on radio, saying he's the metrosexual beta. That was how he referred to Prince Harry. Yeah, Prince Harry, who spent 10 years in the Air Force of uh, Great Britain, who actually served time in Afghanistan versus Charlie Kirk. Who wears makeup and gets behind a microphone? Yeah, Prince Harry. He's the emasculated one. 
and I don't know if it's for anybody to judge whether or not what Meghan Markle is saying is true or not. This is her truth. This is Harry's truth. And I highly doubt that Harry, who's grown up in the monarchy, I highly doubt he would let Meghan Markle go on TV. Let go on TV is is probably the wrong way to say it. That he would approve of Meghan Markle going on TV in front of 17.1 million people and slamming and trashing his own family if there wasn't some validity to it. Now, what's the, what, what's the old saying? There's one side story, there's the other side story, and then there's the truth. And usually the truth is somewhere in the middle. Could some of, the, could some of this be misinterpretation? Of course it can. But all of it? No. Not buying that. Now, some people have come down on Oprah. Who, by the way, again, I don't think is some amazing interviewer. Name, power, cachet, all that great. Doesn't make you a great interviewer. I don't even know if, if I'm, again, I've been doing interviews for 20 plus years. I don't even know if I'm even a great interviewer. I don't know. That's for somebody else to judge. I'm sure I can go and listen to some of my interviews and critique them and think of things maybe I should have asked or asked differently. We're always trying to get better. But I don't think it's out of bounds. Megyn Kelly went after Oprah. I mean, she went after Megan and Harry, but she went after Oprah for not asking certain follow-ups. When Megan and Harry say someone in the monarchy was questioning what the race of the baby was going to be and, and, you know, basically hinting that, oh, we don't want a black baby. <laughs> we don't need no mixed, we don't need no mixed race baby in the monarchy. <laughs> And people are saying Oprah should have followed up more vigorously and said, okay, who said it? Who made you feel this way? That is a completely reasonable question to ask. You cannot let Meghan Markle or Prince Harry go on TV in front of 17.1 million people on CBS in this setting make an allegation like that and not follow it up. You can't do it. So yeah, Oprah dropped the ball on that and she's not beyond reproach and saying that she screwed up not asking the follow-up isn't racism, it's a valid critique. Oprah's got to ask that question. She has got to say, okay, you want to launch that type of allegation. You want to float that out there and let it hover over the monarchy. You've got to give us more. You've got to at least ask the follow-up. Otherwise, you're not doing your job. You're just sitting there having a chat with your friends and giving them a platform. Can't do that. Oprah dropped the ball, plain and simple. Got to ask that follow-up. A lot of interesting information came out of the interview. I'm not saying it didn't. But quite frankly, that information was going to come. Oprah could have just said, okay, talk. And that information was probably going to come out. Clearly, Meghan and Harry had stuff they wanted to get off their chest. 
it was going to come out no matter how Oprah asked the question. But if you're going to sit in that seat opposite Harry and Meghan, you have to ask the important follow-up question. Otherwise, you're simply just granting them a platform to say whatever the hell they want, be damned the consequences and who it paints and what type of light. Well, and again, it might be true. It might not be true. But you got to flush it out a little more with a follow-up. And she didn't. So it's fair in this humble host's opinion to say Oprah did it. Eh, not a good job. We'll finish it with sports next. All right, we welcome you back. Up late with Jason Page. Rich Gray weighing in in the chat room says, I've never understood the interest in the Royals either, especially in the U.S. Why do Americans care about the British monarchy? I'm with you, Rich. I don't know. I've never understood it. Rich watching on YouTube. Thank you for doing that. Share it with your friends. I've never understood it. I've just, we're just about, we're about the sensational. It's the glamorizing of it. We all like to be taken to this fantasy land that we wish we could all probably live in. It's got something to do with it. All right. I got a bunch of stuff I got to squeeze in here. Uh, in the final few minutes. Otherwise, I'm going to run way over time on the show. Uh, Jerry Jones, I have no idea what you're thinking giving Dak Prescott $40 million a year for the next four years. I don't get it. What has he won? Why would you give a guy coming off this severe type of leg injury this kind of money? You don't have to. You've got him under your thumb. You've got the franchise tag. Why would you marry? Why would you commit? (laughs) Why would you commit this kind of capital? And Jerry Jones, above all things you want to say about Jerry Jones and about whether or not he's, you know, a good GM or whether he's a good football mind or anything like that, which would all be valid to question. I mean, the Cowboys haven't won anything in forever. But many would be difficult to try and argue that he's not a great businessman. He doesn't do what's best for business, like Vince McMahon used to say. So Dak gets $40 million a year, hasn't won a damn thing, not an MVP, nothing. Now you could argue some of that is roster makeup and what they've put around him and protecting the quarterback, whatever you want to say. But the reality is, you're judged based on your wins and losses. I think he's a good quarterback. I'd even argue you might be able to win a Super Bowl with him with the right team. That team's not the Cowboys, by the way. It's not That team's not anybody run by an organization run by Jerry Jones. But I can't for the life of me figure out why you would commit $40 million a year for the next four years. I think $127 million is guaranteed because that's the beauty of the NFL. A lot of guaranteed money to those quarterbacks in a league where a lot of the little guys in the league can't get guaranteed money. Dak's going to get $127 million. He didn't have to give in. He could have played this out longer. He could have waited to see how Dak's leg was. I'm not saying you don't give Dak a chance to come in and prove that he could still play at a high level. I'm not saying any of that. That wouldn't be right. But you didn't have to give him $160 million for four years. You didn't have to do it. 
If he had won you something, then I get it. Hasn't won you anything. Not yet, at least. And I suspect over the next four years, he won't either. All right. Um, intersection podcast this week. I have got a great interview with Stan Van Gundy. He's the head coach of the New Orleans Pelicans. Uh, he is a good friend. That doesn't mean we don't ask him tough questions, <coughs> Oprah. We ask the tough questions of Stan Van Gundy in this week's episode uh, of the Intersection Podcast, including this one. Watch for yourself. Stan, I remember talking to you about, might have been three years ago, might have been even four years ago, and you were you were coaching the Pistons. Might have been your second season there, I can't remember. But I remember asking you about the Pistons situation and, and coaching there. And at the time, you had said, this is going to be my last coaching job. What changed? What what changed? Yeah, that's a good question. That's something my wife and I ask each other almost every day, you know. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just I, I got away from it. I think the broadcasting um, that I did, you know, brought me to games on a regular basis. And especially when we got into the bubble last summer and I was there on a daily basis watching games, doing games, you know, there was just that, that itch to get back at it. If the situation was right. And, um, you know, there weren't many, uh, where the situation would be good, but the young talent here, um, David Griffin and Trajan Langdon's record of success in building teams, an ownership group that also owns the saints and has proven that they can have, sustained success in professional sports and then a city that we what we wanted to live in you know I mean we we've been to New Orleans several times we love the city um, it's a really unique city there's no no place like it uh, in this country and so it sort of fulfilled everything uh, that we would be looking for if we were to take one more run at it. And, and that's why we're here in new Orleans. Nothing is this simple. Um, so this is going to sound a tad bit simplistic, but if not for you being in the bubble, because I remember talking to you before the bubble and you weren't sure if you were going to be in there. I remember we, we had a text exchange and you weren't sure that you were actually going to be in there as a member of the media. If you're not in the bubble, are you the head coach of the Pelicans today? I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. And, and uh, for two reasons, I would say, you know, probably not. I'm not sure that I would have felt the same draw to come back. And I'm not sure I would have had the visibility that would have made me uh, a candidate when there's so many good coaches out there. So, so there uh, you go. I don't know. That's sure. uh, Stan Van Gundy in his own words. Uh, and, and you can see the complete conversation. You can hear the complete conversation uh, in the Intersection podcast, it'll be available on Tuesday morning in the United States. Subscribe if you haven't done so already. It's from my friends at Believe, the Believe Podcast Network, B-L-E-A-V. We're on every platform, Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, uh, Amazon, I think, has it too. Go and get the podcast. It's going to be a great conversation, I promise. You get a lot of interesting information out of it. Uh, my, conversa my conversation with Pelicans head coach Stan Van Gundy and you got to hear some of what he says as well um, about, I think, one of the terrific talents in the uh, world of the NBA, and that being Zion Williamson. Some very telling comments about 
where his game is and where it could potentially be headed. All right, uh, let me finish with the best video of the day, can I? Um, dogs are just the greatest, so anytime I can get a dog on the show, we're going to do it. Best video today, how about this guy in Poland teaching his dog how to wave to him? <laughs> I love the dog. It's just the cutest dog ever. Oh, I love it. You know what I just noticed for the first time? I've seen this video a hundred times. You know what I actually just noticed for the first time watching that video? He's got two of the same dog. He's got two dogs. I never noticed the other dog just kind of laying there all chill while while he's doing this with the dog. But look at the dog wave. Oh, God. Dogs are the greatest. Sorry, they just are. Nothing better than dogs in this world. Just give me a world of dogs. I don't need anything else. Nope. (laughs) I'm sorry. Humans suck compared to dogs. It's just no getting around it. (laughs) Humans just suck compared to dogs. We went a little overtime today, but that's okay. It's worth it. Uh, Thank you so much for watching and being with us up late. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. The Up Late with Jason Page podcast, the Intersection podcast, both from Believe on every platform. If you can't watch us, listen to us. I appreciate it. Have a great rest of your Monday or Tuesday, depending on where you're watching us around the world or listening to us. Again, the Stan Van Gundy entire interview, 45 minutes on everything, NBA, social issues, politics, you name it. That'll be available Tuesday morning in the U.S. on the Intersection Podcast. I'm Jason Page. Stay safe. Stay grounded. Mask up. We're almost through this. Catch you back here next time. Up late. See ya. For listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube.